I need faith when it comes to racism. Because if you come up against something bigger, stronger, and faster than you, then you need something bigger, stronger, and faster than what you're coming up against. And that would be my faith. Hey, everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show, because right now we are in a series called For the Love of the Elephant in the Room. It's been really powerful. We decided as a team to tackle conversations or issues or experiences that are just hard to talk about, ubiquitous to the human experience and yet difficult to talk about. And so rather than skirt around them or just choose easier, lower hanging fruit, we just decided to, to just go right to the center of the bullseye as we do here. And, and I hope that it's meaningful to you because I've said before that discomfort is one of the greatest deterrents of progress. We just hate discomfort. We hate hard things. We hate a sense of discord or it's an unbelievable deterrent for how actually not that big of a deal it is. Discomfort, that's our biggest problem. And yes, it is. We'll stay in dysfunctional relationships for years rather than avoid an uncomfortable conversation. And we'll just let unhealthy patterns just roll on like, year after year after year, rather than face it head on and get to the really, it's just a low ROI to keep us out of important places where we could be experiencing growth or reform, reversal, health, joy, like reconnection. What a strange enemy of progress and hope. And I don't know why our desire to keep the peace is so strong because I've said this before. I said this when fierce came out because it was a big theme of that book, which is by the way, keeping the peace is a fake idea. That's a fake construct. We say we are keeping the peace, but what happens is we have no peace. We have no peace or we are robbing someone else of peace because there's always going to be a cost. Either we are going to pay it internally or at the expense of our relationships or our own growth and development and health, or it's going to be at somebody else's expense at the expense of their equality or of their dignity, of their power differential. And so we're not keeping the peace. That's fake. That's fake. That is the enemy of change. And so today we're diving into yet another topic. Now, Elephant in the room obviously addresses conversations that are generally avoided, but this is not one that we've ever avoided on this show or in my life. It's so like cut so deep to the bone for me. So this is a big part of my ethos in the world, but this should be on every living radar. It affects every single one of us profoundly. So, and we're talking today about racism on the upside here. I'm encouraged to see just the the scope of conversations right now that we are seeing around white supremacy in the media, in the church, even golly, last to the table online in podcasts. And this is at least as we look at the arc of progress, it's, it's as, or more visible than it's ever been, which should be the case. That doesn't mean it isn't, it's where it needs to be because obviously not, but the trajectory is up. So here we still are. The system is still doing what the system does. It's baked in, which we have a really good discussion around systems today. So I want you just to stay in like, all right, if you're feeling discomfort, if you're like, oh, here's that feeling I don't like, it's a, remind, remind yourself that is a deterrent from growth. That is a deterrent from change. That is a deterrent from making something meaningful out of something that is unjust. So stay in it. Just stay in it with me today. By the way, if you need another starting point, go back to my show on the For the Love podcast and listen to the whole series called For the Love of Black Lives. This was a profoundly powerful series we did in 2020. Conversations with some of the best leaders out there. Everything from how challenging it is to find mental health resources for communities of color to self-care to systemized injustices. We went everywhere, all over. That was a really, really powerful series and a good place to start. But, but here we are today. 
still inarguably living inside of a culture that is disproportionately favored toward the white experience. How can we honestly and compassionately communicate about this? How can we bring this conversation to the center and treat it with the respect and the humility and the care that it deserves? Well, I'll tell you, we're going to start today with two really incredible guests. So I've got Reggie Dabbs and John Driver on today. They're longtime friends. Reggie's black, John's white. And during the course of their friendship, they have been engaging in honest and respectful and challenging conversations about racism in America, including how black and white Christians, they've pulled it into the faith space, can come together to, if you're white, confront our own racist instincts that we were sort of born into, even if we don't even know that they live there into our systems. And then what it means for the black experience to continue to lean on faith as a source of courage and strength and resiliency, what it means to partner with their white brothers and sisters who are unaware of their own complicity or don't know where to start, right? Like there's a lot here. These two have wrote a book together called Not So Black and White. And It is such a good resource. If you are starting this conversation, if you've got questions or concerns or critiques, or if you feel that like hot burn of defensiveness or shame or confusion around it, this is a fantastic resource to put in your hands because they not only want us to understand the history of racism in America and specifically in the church, but what our response as Christians and friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters should be to the challenges of racism in ourselves and our communities. And so just a little bit more about the two of them. Reggie Dabbs, he's just this nationally known public speaker. John told me at the end of our conversation that Reggie travels, he travels 300 days a year for over 30 years. And he primarily speaks to schools, high schools and middle schools to talk with teens about the big choices they have in front of them, mental health, substance abuse. It it runs the gamut. He's a warrior, like out there doing the thing, helping them face the problems they're actually facing and, and putting coping mechanisms in their hands. He's incredible. And in fact, you'll see this, especially those of you who go watch on YouTube, he recorded this podcast today in between two sessions at a middle school at the back of a middle school auditorium. Then John Driver, he's a former history teacher turned author and teaching pastor. So he has authored or co-authored or collaborated on more than 25 books. So he's also the co-host of the podcast called Talk About That, where he talks about all things faith and culture. And he's pushing the envelope on what many traditional Christians, white Christians, I should say, believe or have been taught to believe, which, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to that. And so I love this because this isn't just the white perspective today. It's, it's the white and the black perspective, because we can get real focused on white, like Christians. I can say this as a white person who hosts this conversation a lot. Christians need to care about justice, but that's the white Christian perspective. Black Christians already care. Like we don't need to teach Christians of color that the world is not built to serve them, right? So I love the combination of perspectives that we have on the show today. I think it's powerful. I think it's well-rounded. It's generous and gracious. Whatever sort of like internal feeling you're feeling right now, just stay in it because I think you're going to find this conversation to be meaningful and very full of hope and possibility and and compassion and connection. I, it was fantastic. I'm proud to know both of these men and super proud to have them on the show. So you guys help me welcome Reggie and John to the For the Love podcast. Okay, Reggie and John, I'm so happy to meet you both. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for saying yes to the show and thank you for helping us walk through this conversation. You're welcome. Yeah, excited to be with you. So listeners, if you're on YouTube, you can watch us and you can see who's who here. But for those of you who are just listening, would you guys each mind so they can figure out who's who, introducing yourselves a little bit. And I've I've told my listeners some about you, kind of a high level about who you both are, but just who you are, where you are in the world, who are your people, kind of what's your general deal. And then we'll get into this really important conversation. How about you start, Reggie? 
All right. Uh, my name is Reggie Dabbs. I live in Texas, but right now I'm in the backstage at a middle school <laughs> auditorium where I did two assembly programs. And uh, it's uh, it's cool. And I think there's like a seventh or eighth grader looking over my shoulder right now. But it's kind I of fun. I see him. I see him. <laughs> Photo bombed by a 13-year-old. I do about a million plus students in their in their on their campuses live every year. And I just like to give a message of hope that you can make it. You can't change your past, but you can change your future. Yeah. Good for you, man. Okay, John, how about you? Yeah, I live uh, just outside of Nashville and uh, I'm a writer and a pastor. And so um, I don't have a middle schooler looking over my shoulder, but <laughs> I'm just in my office this morning. But yeah, so I, I work, I'm, I'm the collaborator in a lot of books. If I'm the guy with a little with name you've never heard of on a book, if it's with and not an and, that's me. <laughs> so, Listen, the whiffs matter. You know they, they do. The whiffs get the book to the shelf. That's the facts right there. So good. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do whiffs. that. I do that a lot. And then I get to write some of my own stuff as well. And so that's what I do. And then I'm my day, my other full-time day job is I'm a pastor. I've done that for about 21 years now. So and what's your church? It's the church at Pleasant Grove in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. That's great. Okay, you guys. So you are two very different men with two very different careers. And yet here you are in collaboration together and have been so. And so this particular series on the podcast is called The Elephant in the Room. And so our our goal here was to steer hard into challenging conversations, difficult topics, things that are real and true, but challenging to navigate. And so we are not new to racism in my community. This is uh, this is a center spoke of our wheel. However, for a lot of listeners, this is still one of those spaces, particularly white listeners, who feel out of their depth. And so I wonder if you guys could start here. Could you share with us how is this happening? How did you first meet? What's your personal connection here? And what got you talking about your unique, obviously, experiences and perspectives of racism? And how did that eventually lead you to taking this conversation to a much broader level? Reggie, can you start? Absolutely. Uh, for years, we've known each other, me and John, for over 20 years. Back in the day, he would bring me in to do uh, youth stuff for his youth group and in his city because he didn't just, uh, he wasn't just youth pastor in a church. He youth pastored an entire city. And so we do the public schools, the high schools, middle school assembly programs. And we did that. And one day I just looked at him because I've known him so long. I said, you need to help me write my book. So he helped me write my autobiography. And then we did another book about public schools. And, and finally, as that friendship started. And But we never in 20 plus years ever had a talk about race and racism until after George Floyd passed away, John called me. And I'll let him pick up where, he, where we left off there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when I watched that video, I was sitting in the bed with my wife and I just started crying. And there's been so much movement in my life in this, in, in ministry and just as, as a, a white guy. And I just kind of looked at her and said, you know, we've just been sitting here, I think, talking about this, concerned about this, but we're not showing up for anything. And so it's time for us to, to show up for something and stand with people, you know, not to show up to save anybody or fix anything, but to be in this problem with our, our brothers and sisters. And so one of the first things I did, and that's just my way, is I ordered about 10 books and began reading a lot of Black authors and theologians and historians that I should have been reading the whole time. And then the next day I called my friend Reggie and I just said, Hey man, listen, I, mean, I, I really repented to him. Like, man, and I think this is a big touchy subject for a lot of people. What are you repenting for? You didn't do all of that. But what I was repenting for is, listen, I've not been a friend or an ally. I've not been with you in this and you don't owe me an explanation. You don't have to educate everybody in the world about this. But if you wanted to share about your experiences, I would like to listen so I could share with you and, and just being present, being beside you in it. And, and he did. He's just a gracious guy. I began sharing. And that's sort of the, the genesis of how all this started for us. Mm. Reggie, I'm curious how that phone call felt to you, because I wonder how that landed. You'd been friends for 20 years already. And this is the first meaningful conversation you've had around your lived experience, which has been since the day you were born. I wonder if, I, I just wonder if you can talk through your response and even your kind of internal mechanism when John called you. 
I knew something was wrong because he was like, hey, I need to ask you something. And it might put our friendship on the line. And I'm like, okay, where are we going? And then he literally just said, well, what is it like being black in America? Which is a great way to put it. But but it, I'm like, okay, let's just jump right in. Okay. <laughs> you talk about the elephant in the room. He just like walked him through the front door. But I literally, I said, I said and, I, and it was cool because I've been to volleyball games with his his wife and his daughters played in. She's a middle schooler. And I, and I watched her. And, and for some reason in my head, I went straight to when you teach her how to drive, there are certain things you'll do that you will never have to do because if it was my son, who's Dominic. So when Dominic got in the car, I said, okay, what's the first thing you do? And I asked people this, and a lot of people say, put on your seatbelt, adjust the mirrors, make sure the seat's close enough. But the first thing I taught my son was to take his wallet out of his back pocket and put it in the cup holder or put it beside him so that when he gets pulled over, he's not reaching in his back pocket because he said that that'll end his life really quick. And this one thing that a white family would never have to do that a black family does have to do. And a lot of people like systemic racism. Well, that's my one example of it right there, because everybody who's black has been taught that. And then it, it was a good way to do it because then John was just like, oh my goodness. And he literally apologized for that. And I said, you don't have to apologize. I just want my son to be here to be an effective person in the world. So I got to give him tools he needs to get through the day. Mm. And the wisdom in using that as an example is I think sometimes when it comes to the discussion around racism and white supremacy, especially for white people who are trying to find an entry point, it's such at the 35,000 foot view, it's so systemic, it's so broad reaching, it's so historical, it's so baked into our systems that it's kind of an overwhelming way to begin to approach it. Just having to parse through all we've ever learned slash not learned and recreate what is actually structurally true. But what you did was you put him in the shoes of a dad and said, let's just take it down to the ground. This is what it's like as a black dad as of a black son. So we'll get to the systems and the structures because we have to, but that is the experience. That is the lived experience. I have five kids. My youngest two kids are black. My son Ben, he's 18. The number of times we have had this conversation is endless. I can't, I can't even count it. This is not anything that would have ever been on my radar 10 years ago. My kids are, are adopted. And this is just the facts. This isn't histrionic. It's not emotional. It, well, it is emotional, but it's not an overreaction. This is the world that we live in. And so I appreciate so much, John, that you decided, frankly, late in the game, in your friendship to ask these hard questions and to join our neighbors and our brothers and our sisters and our teachers in their shared experience. So you guys, your book, Not So Black and White, it ruffled some feathers, especially in the kind of religious space, in the Christian white evangelical space. And so let's talk about this. Let's talk about it a little bit. Can you talk about the book? the process of writing it together. What was your goal for it? What was the arc of the book? What, what was the objective? And then how was it received both for good and for bad and by whom? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, and I forget who said it, a famous writer said, you know, writing is the act of discovering what you believe if you're a writer. Like, so for me, I process things through getting it on paper and then I have to sort of measure it from all sides and it allows me to seek out sources. And, and so you know, I was in that process and Reggie and I, I was just like, hey man, we're having these great conversations. <laughs> do you mind if we write about this some? And of course we've done two other books and he knows that's what I do in order to, I think, make a, a contribution to the conversation. And of course this one's just, it's just riddled with landmines. And like you said, late to the game. And I have a friend told him one day, I said, man, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm late to the game on this. And he said, you know, that would really only matter if we were close to the end of this game. Hmm. He said, he Good. said, I tell a lot Good of, answer. a lot of guys, Hey, there's, there's, you know, so much work left to be done that it's okay if you're late to the game, because there's, there's a lot of work left. we're not even close, unfortunately, to being done with this game. I appreciate you saying that by the way, because just right now, because I want you to go finish back to your thought, but I have a lot of people listening right now who would consider themselves late to the game, which is kind of an overwhelming seat to sit in. And so thanks for just saying in answer, Reggie, that it's not like, it's not. Anybody who wants to join the game at any point in it, get in, like lace up, let's go. And so we can get one minute of regret. 
for sort of being on the sidelines. And then it's like go time. So good. Keep going, please. Yeah. I mean, because shame never leads anywhere good. You're not going to do That's anything right. good just, just sitting in it or just rejecting it. And so that was sort of the way I got started with it. We started having these conversations. Of course, this is during the pandemic. And so the way the book is actually written, I mean, we weren't coming into the office. And so I bought two patio heaters in my back deck because my daughter was in school there. My wife works from home. And so it was loud. And I literally sat with a fire table and two patio heaters with just gloves on in the back, did Zoom calls back there and wrote this book in the middle of the winter. And, and it was a great experience and a really hard experience to go down sort of that rabbit hole of all. And I'm a history teacher. That's what I majored in in college and all those things. And so I knew a lot of these things, but, but I guess coming to that place, you understand a lot of the things that you've been taught. And I think there's a, obviously we're, we're up in arms right now about this rewriting of history and CRT and everyone's so worried about we're going to rewrite history. And what people don't understand is what if a lot of the history you're reading already through the lost cause narrative has already been rewritten. And so coming to that place to go, hey, there's a lot of things here that we've not been told throughout the course of this, of this process. And so as we were writing, just Reggie and I began sharing those things, but the book really begins with these kinds of conversations. Every chapter opens with a conversation between the two of us. And just being willing to understand that friendship and, and a gracious friend allows you to step on minds and they don't explode. Like Reggie never exploded on me. I was able to walk through this field because I had a friend to say, hey, look, this is okay. And, and, and I think you get past that sort of understanding of or that fear of, hey, I'm going to be held responsible for this. And Reggie's like, look, you're not responsible for this. You know, we're now only responsible for what we do together moving forward. We can bear some fault. And a lot of that is a recovery process for me to be willing to say there's a lot of things in my life that I know I haven't done right. And that's actually the basis of the gospel for me. Like the idea that, that a lot of us white Christians are just standing back saying, I cannot be indicted for this when we claim to believe something that begins with our acceptance of being indicted for all right. the things we need Jesus right. for. There's a cognitive so, dissonance there. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like we've siloed out where grace should be in our lives. And we say, no, no, this is a place I'm not going to need it. And so I, I think that just kind of, you know, realized, wow, I need grace everywhere. And, and this is a place I need it. Maybe if I was wrong in that part of the last 20 years and this part, it doesn't mean I throw out everything I've ever done. I, I haven't been out doing, you know, overtly racist individual acts, but my lack of being involved in this is contributing to the status quo of systemic issues and downstream of those that are affecting my friends like Reggie. And so that's really where we began to just write about it and, and, and see where those fault lines were between the individual, which is where a lot of white Christians get hung up. Like, hey, we just need heart change, all these things. So we write about heart change in the book. But we just say, look, the system doesn't have a heart. And so the system and individuals and systems both need change. They just need to be changed different ways. And so we're going to talk about the heart, but let's not stop there. Let's see how that flows in then to a lot of people with changed hearts being able to also affect the system positively. Mm, that's really, really good. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, Reggie, because I know this from being deep in relationship and community and, and collaboration with a lot of my Black friends and Black teachers and leaders and content creators. So what I know from their experience is that Anytime they're going to step into this space, particularly with a white partner who comes with a largely white community, which is me, which is probably John, it is a labor. This is an emotional labor. You've chosen it and you've stepped into a space that has a high cost. I want to recognize that and I want to honor it because it's not a cost. I believe everybody is called to and even equipped to pay. And it shouldn't be. It's not the black responsibility to educate the white brain. And so for those of you who have chosen to do that work, it's so noble and it's cost you a lot. And so I just, I want you to know that I know that. And I thank you for it. I thank you for doing it. And it matters. It's moving the needle forward. It does matter. And I know that you see the fruits of it, but having your partnership inside our largely white spaces. Well, we can't do, there is no, there's no movement without you. And so thank you. I'd love to hear your thoughts too on the book, on writing, what you were hoping to achieve at the end of what are you hoping your reader walked away with? I literally was just, I I was, I I think it was great that me and John had a, a bridge 
before we started digging into all this stuff because the bridge that we had helped us walk through situations and conversations other people would have probably never been able to do. The so relational that, bridge. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that bridge of trust and, and uh, going to volleyball games and being Tennessee fans, volunteer fans, you know, sure, all that it all brings us all together. together. It really does. It's the stuff that brings us together. And, uh, and because of that, it was, it was easier to do. The end result is, you know, I have a 27-year-old son. And my whole thing is when he gets older and has kids and, and they look back at this time, you know, hey, you know, COVID hit. And then all of a sudden, racial tensions went up. What did granddad do? And my son can reach over to a bookshelf and pull off a book and goes, him and his white friend wrote this, you know, That's and right. it's like, and they can like see that, that we did what we, we knew in our heart was right. And, you know, not everybody gets a platform like we get to have. Sure. Not everybody gets to be a voice like this. So you do it, you walk gently, but I love the conversation, how we did each chapter starts with us talking. And then we unpack the questions and stuff that we talked about and it worked out really well. This is such a courageous, respectfully honest and challenging conversation with Reggie and John. Another really important thing I want to talk about here for just a second is our kids. Not only is it so critical that we're inviting them into these hard discussions, but it's also important we're equipping them with additional types of educational support. You know, like even in the best of circumstances, your child probably isn't getting the level of one-on-one -on -one teaching they really need to reach their full potential. Teachers are doing their ultimate best, of course, but the reality is they just don't have time to customize their approach. So Byju's future school is changing the game though. So with Byju's, students receive personalized attention and a world-class learning experience. It's completely online, all in service of supplementing their regular day-to-day -day school education. Byju's has small group and one-on-one -on -one learning sessions in math and music and coding. They are committed to helping students become creators and build skills they'll use for the rest of their lives while sparking a love of learning. Join the millions of parents accelerating their kids' learning today. Right now, Byju's Future School is offering our listeners their first class free. Just go to byjuice.com slash for the love to sign up for your first class absolutely free. So that's B-Y-J-U-S dot com slash for the love. It's a new year, beloveds. We made it to 2022. This is a time where some of us may set resolutions or maybe intentions or words for our year. It's a great time to really reflect on where we need to just pull some different levers in our lives. This is why I'm also just so excited to introduce you to the Me Course series, which is a series that I have put out with my incredible team. Our mission here is simple. This is inspirational, educational, and actionable content, as I like to say, for the rest of us. It's not heady graduate level work here, okay? But it is what we all need, from finance, to building better habits, to cultivating simplicity in the name of wellness, and more. These are some of the pillars where I personally have seen the most life change in myself, and in others. And so with me course, we are telling you what actually does work. And I do it with some friends, friends who are experts in their respective fields, and they talk you through it too. We've really distilled it all down to the best of the best, a true highlight reel of everything you need to know in real life and how to make it work for you without you needing to commit hours upon hours of your time, which you don't have. Here's what you can expect. Four 15-ish minute sessions, and that's it. But also, as you will see, that is enough. We They are packed and condensed without tons of fluff. We also have a whole library of bonus resources to explore and implement and remind you of what you learned. You get it all. Let's start learning together and be here for our lives in this way. So register now at mecourse.org and use the code for the love to save $10 off already discounted prices. 
This is the best deal. I can't wait. MeCourse.org. Join us. It may be hard to sort of like nail down, but in general, what were the common pain points from your readers who were struggling through the discussion? What what did you hear? What's what's one of the given bits of feedback that you kind of had to keep dismantling? We interviewed a lot of people and had a lot of conversations during the writing. And I think it seems to center around one, white people, I've heard this a lot. They would say, I'm just so sick of everyone calling me a racist. That's a real big, and we start in the introduction, like we say, hey, use up all of your highlighter on this one. Like we're not calling you a racist. The gospel actually says that we're all way worse than a racist. So we get, we kind of get there eventually through the chapters, but sort of getting over the hump of that insult, like, hey, can we just take this away from the fact that maybe this issue is bigger right now than whether or not someone in this moment is calling you as an individual a racist. And usually if you ask them like, who, who said that to you? They, they can't actually name anybody. It's what they're hearing in the media or in the conversation. And, and so, you know, that's the first part. And the second part, again, it goes back to that individual versus systemic issue of, you know, we have taught sort of, and I was raised in the nineties, you know, it, you kind of had this colorblind sort of way of looking at it. It's like, I've known for 20 years, my friend Reggie's black, you know, it's not like we'd never acknowledged that we had, you know, we were of different ethnicities, but there was a sense of, and I'm not sure it was ever actually just taught to you explicitly, but there was a sense that if I address race with him, then it's insulting and I'm actually being racist. Like if I acknowledge it too much. So we were actually doing the opposite of what we should have been doing. And through, and through that, and Reggie tells a lot of just crazy stories of white friends and other things in his life and things that they, they did that was in jest because there was not a respect given to the conversation. And so being willing to sort of cross into this and realize again, hey guys, we didn't all blow up because we acknowledge that you know Reggie's black and I'm white or that there are issues in his life that I've not faced that I might not be able to explain. And I think that's probably the third big one. You can't explain everything through your own lens. If you're not looking through someone else's lens at some point, then you're literally just overlaying the way you want to see the world. And I think the terms are where everyone gets caught up in that now. Oh, well, a white privilege. Well, all the, mostly by deal with who struggle with that, they don't have an accurate definition of white privilege. But we go back to sort of the inception of where that word came from. Like, actually, and it's not new. It's not some just political term. It was in the 80s. It was coined. Here's what it means. It literally just means, you know, because the color of your skin, there's an added disadvantage or advantage. Not whether or not you worked hard. Not whether or not you went to college or whether or not you hold yourself or up by your poor or bad. rich. Right. right. It's not about it's, that. But we, until we can actually get over the insult of those terms and engage in the conversation for what they actually mean, then we're not going to be able to address it. So for me, those are the three big things that hang people up. And if you can get over those and open your mind and realize that, you know, I'm, I'm, it's okay to sit here in this conversation, then most people have been very receptive once they get over those places. That's sort of the process for me. Even once, once you get over that and you start talking to real people and real experiences, you find that, hey, this is all right. I'm not, I'm not going to burst into flames of liberalism or whatever it is you're afraid of just because I talk about social justice a little bit and, and, and what's happening in our country. Although it's a pretty big hurdle. Oh, yeah. That is a hurdle and it's a big one, which is why Reggie was so wise to start with you to talk about this is how I teach my son to drive. Let's just talk about our d different experiences and let that just lay on the page and have a look at it. Did you have anything to add to that, Reggie? No, it's, he's, he's right. And, then, and the way that it does is what we did was we talked to people about letting go of those situations, let go of the things that make you angry, you know, put down the insults so we can get to the problem and work our way through it. So the book has a great way of doing that, of helping people let go of the insults. It's just interesting the amount of work it takes to move this conversation up and over the, the barrier of white fragility. It just is such a challenge and a constant and consistent barrier. And one thing that I have said for years is I've done my own work here, my own internal work, which of course I was starting in negative space, uh, you know, is that however you want to look at it, privilege is a reliable enemy of discernment. It is. And we have a discernment problem here. We struggle to discern what is true and real and systemic and historical. And our privilege keeps us out of it. So like I ask people all the time, no matter what intersection you are at, where is the intersection where you have privilege? 
that's the one that needs to be examined. So for you guys, you're men. Now, John obviously has the upper hand because he's white, but in a lot of rooms, you get the microphone, you know, you, the power is conceded to the men in the room. For me, I'm white and straight. That has a space where I get favor. So I'm always asking people, where is it that you have privilege and do, can we have the humility to examine that deeply? And, and this is one of those, I want to focus on this thought for a minute, because you say that your book aims to discover fully biblical yet culturally wise responses to the challenges of racism in yourself and in your community. John, you've started, you've dipped in a little bit to kind of the faith space here in this conversation. And I'd like to talk about it because what I saw, and I think a lot of people saw in growing up in my particular sort of religious structures, which was conservative, white, traditional Southern Baptist, was that I I can vouch for myself. Racism wasn't talked about at all. Like at all, this was not a, we have, I don't remember having one meaningful sentence into my eardrums from a leader, a spiritual leader growing up. But what we know is that racism has deep roots in the church, deep roots. The church was a partner in white supremacy generation to generation. And so I'd like to hear you both talk a little bit about this from a faith side of things. Um, what do you mean a biblical approach to racism? What does that look like? What, what do you guys think that looks like? And how do we put this, that brand of conversation in front of faith people who never thought, believed, or were taught white faith people that this issue was theirs to contend with? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a challenging statement to say the gospel, and this is another hurdle does the gospel call us to address racism? I mean, I think that's the question for the church. And we make a bold sort of declaration, like we're not trying to end racism in the world with this book, but we are trying to end racism in the church. And we meet a lot of people that say, oh, well, racism's always been here. It's, it's, it's always going to be here. And we, we challenge that like, well, the, our viewpoint of what God is actually doing is, is a pretty low view. If we think that it's just okay to have racist elements within God's people, is if the Bible doesn't address that. And so then the question is, well, does the Bible really address that? And, and so we, in the book, go down that path a little bit. And I think for me, Acts chapter six is, is a big one. The Greeks, and I, one of the ways we say this is, hey, someone rose up and said, Greek widows matter. And you look at what was the reaction of that then versus today. And then it's like two verses. It's like, oh, okay, well, we need to fix this. We put some people in charge of this and they end the discrimination and they move on. But today it'd be like, endless grandstanding, finger pointing, let's come up with terms. Let's hold the person who's doing the the distribution process accountable. And of course, this is a human system within God's church. And so they'd come up with a system to do something good. This is a systemic issue. And so the intent uh, versus the impact was different. And, And it's okay to go. They didn't intend any harm when they started to feed the poor. But along the way, they had to address that this system didn't have a heart, right? It was ran by people who had hearts and and there were issues that happened. And so it's okay to just not be so insulted we can't address it. So I think we have to challenge the church to say, look, and I'm like you, I I wasn't taught this. Now, my dad taught me a lot of things. He was a principal in a a very multi-ethnic school that 31 language groups in his school and so he, he probably taught me, and I write about him in the book a lot, he, he taught me to see things a little differently, even about how the church had missed it, the white church had missed it in a lot of times throughout history on this, this issue. But beyond that, yeah, in, in terms of what the church taught, I mean, it, it was just like, hey, love people, you know? And so that's such a broad term, or even the gospel, such a broad term that you can throw on things, whatever that means to you, you have to sort of, and this is a, a dangerous word I know for a lot of people, but I do have to deconstruct that down to what I really believe and not just what I assume I believe. I may have assumed beliefs versus functional beliefs. And so I think it's been the most beautiful process of my entire life, not just about race, about a lot of things, is really saying, hey, where is the bottom of what I believe? I believe when I keep drilling down, I'm not tearing it down. I'm I'm looking at it. And when I get there, I know the gospel will hold for me. But I have to be willing to to see what is not going to hold when the storms hit. Like what's on top of this rock that it, you know is not going to hold, or is, is it on stand instead of the rock? Like I got to get this thing all aligned properly because I believe that it'll stand. And so I think being okay with that. Hey, it, listen, Jesus' church does not need us to uphold it. 
Like he doesn't need us to usher in his kingdom. He doesn't need us to, you know, all the things that a lot of white Christians think about these issues today. Hey, it's, it's okay to say that I'm a part of the problem in many, many ways. That's the essence of the beginning of the gospel. I've been redeemed. I don't remain a part of the problem. I don't have to, but I, I have grace and, and, and it's all right because of grace, not just to look at my past, but to look at my present, to build something different in the future. And so I can, I can be present in this conversation with humility if I don't have humility, if I'm not able to listen and not quick to listen and slow to anger and all of the things that scripture tells us to do, then at least on some of those issues, I'm not approaching it from a gospel perspective. So don't say that I am. Don't call things that are counterintuitive to the gospel, gospel-based things. Don't call them Christian. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but don't call the way we're approaching this Christianity, if we're not going to do it according to the purity of the gospel, which always leads back, not just to being the tone police and those kinds of things, but it always leads back to a place of being willing to change, to have my mind turned, metanoia, repentance, to the turning of one's mind. If I'm not, if I can't acknowledge I have anything to turn from, then I can't actually continue a lifestyle of repentance. And so for me, that's the message to the church. Be humble enough. It's okay. Continue in the humility that brought you to faith in the first place. Just continue in it as you move forward. So that's good. That's the message to the white church. Reggie, I'm interested in your answer here because you come at faith-based approach here from the black experience, which doesn't need to have their minds changed. They know. And so you face a different sort of faith path through this completely different from John's. It's not a sense of repenting from your own complicity inside a hierarchical racial structure. What what is this for you? What is a faith-based path through repentance and reform look like from your perspective? The one word would be a reaction. It's, It's how I react. It's how I it's how I live. It's who I am. So when I say it's racism and faith, faith has gotten me through so many things in my life. How I grew up being in foster care, growing up uh, with no last name, all this stuff. But faith was there to give me the strength to get through all those things. And if I'm going to take faith through something that difficult, I need faith when it comes to racism. Because if you come up against something bigger, stronger, and faster than you, then you need something bigger, stronger, and faster than what you're coming up against. And that would be my faith. So that gives me the right to have the right reaction, the right response, and to believe in that response. Because the first thing I do is I take who I am to my faith. And then I live on the other side of that. And that's when you change, uh, like my glasses. If I give you my lenses and say, okay, put these on and look through the way I'm seeing things. Well, the day I started my faith journey, God gave me his lenses. And it's different than what any other race looks through, even myself. But I've decided that's how I'm going to look at life through his lenses. And that's what makes a difference. Mm. That's a great answer. And... It's interesting because our gospel, our scriptures were actually handed to us from an oppressed perspective, virtually from beginning to end. There are very few moments in the Bible in which God's people were in a position of power. It happened for like a minute and then wasn't. And so my black theologian teachers are the ones who taught me to read scripture through the perspective by which it was written, to whom it was written. It was written by oppressed people for oppressed people. And somehow powerful white Americans have centered ourselves as the God's chosen people character in scripture. And thus we've never read it correctly. We've never gotten it right. If we are not reading God's word through the lens of a marginalized perspective, we are distorting it. And so this has been my part of my approach through the faith piece. Like God's not ambiguous about where he throws his lot in. And so if we are not throwing our lot in, in the same manner, we're getting it wrong. Like we are getting it upside down. I'm so interested right now in elevating and celebrating good things. So community, I'd like to introduce you to Abel. If you're not familiar with Able, they are an ethical fashion brand that employs and empowers women as a solution to end poverty. (laughs) Love. 
They're deeply devoted also to quality, both in the products they make and in the quality of life they aim to provide. So they invest in, train, and educate women so they can earn a living, break the cycle of poverty, and thrive. And would you believe it all started with scarves for them? In Ethiopia, they met women coming out of the commercial sex industry who asked for help finding jobs. So they trained them to make scarves. And after selling over 4,000 of them in two months, they knew they were onto something. And now Abel has grown from hand-woven scarves to a whole lifestyle brand with leather bags and clothes, shoes, jewelry, and more. I have so much of their stuff that I wear on constant rotation. I cannot say enough good things about Abel. Truly, come check them out for the cause and their incredible business practices and stay for the fashion. You can get 20% off site-wide with my code 20GIN at livefashionable.com. So that's 20GIN at livefashionable.com. I want to ask one more question, guys, before we sort of start to land it here. I don't think there's a clear cut answer here. So you can throw this against the wall, however you want. Here we still are, you know, 400 years in here in our, and then forever in the world. I'd like to hear from both of you. If you think there is a way to move forward now in our generation, how long will you delay Lord? Right. But in our generation where white supremacy really begins to experience a reversal. And then particularly, let's think about somebody who's young in the process. Where would you suggest they start? And what are a couple of the paver stones that you would lay in front of people in their own hearts, lives, neighborhoods, and churches to begin that reversal in their own lives for the white people? And then I'd like to hear in the same way, for the listeners of color, for the believers of color, every, all of them. What about there? What about there? Because this is so painful. It's so painful. As we sit here today, as we were recording, we just had the Rittenhouse verdict come down. It was devastating to watch and to read. Like, it's not as if that our collective culture is not, is not hurting. We're still suffering here. And we are still seeing a system work exactly as it was intended to work. It's right on, it's right on point. So I just asked you like 10 questions. You can pick whichever one you want. And you know what? I'm going to go first. You want. Okay. Yes. Go right. The reason I'm going first is because there's a couple of hundred kids waiting for me and yep. <laughs> I got to yep. get to them, but go. here's why. And using them as the example, there comes a time when it's not about you. It's about them. So if I'm going to talk to your, your, your black listeners, your people of color, you have to decide. I'm going to make this a better world for them. I'm going to give them hope. I'm going to give them a way out in this thing. And what we have to do is everything that has happened to us, we might have to sit on a shelf so that we can find an answer so they never have to go through what we went through. So we may have to be, say, hey, it's not the answer I want, but it's the answer we need. I don't know That's if you good. got what I just said. It's That's not good. the answer I want, but it's the answer they need. You see what I'm saying? I do. It's make their world a better place. Martin Luther King Jr. did it best when he did his I Have a Dream speech. He stopped talking about himself and he started talking about his kids and his kids' kids. He started looking at it in a bigger picture. Our hope in this book and our hope in this session today is that somebody goes, you know what? I can't change what they did to me, but I can prevent it from happening to someone else. And, and it's like anything we have in this world, we have to decide, let's figure this out now so that tomorrow can be a better place. And that's what you're doing, Jen. And I, I honor you for this. I've listened to some of your stuff and the way you tackle it, you're just, here we go, let's go. And it's good. It's good that there are voices like yours out there. And John, you know what I already think about you. You guys are just doing a thing awesome. I'm just a, I'm just a guy out there loving people where they're at. And that's the way I look at this. I'm going to love people now so that they can have a future tomorrow. 
Listen, this is the truth about you. You are sitting in a middle school auditorium. You're yeah, about it's to about to get nasty. They're holding, <laughs> they're holding them in the hall right now. So get if I if Go I hit leave, I want to someday we got to come back and do this again. Okay. But John, you finish. All right. Yeah. Love you guys. Thank you, Reggie. That's as real as it gets with Reggie. He's he's out there. He's just out there right now. He's doing, doing it. it. He's doing yeah. it. He's doing the thing. It's he's incredible. Doing the thing. Yeah, I think I think my answer for I mean, and I don't mean this as as how it sounds maybe would be weird, but this is your question is exactly why and what our book is about. It's why we wrote it and what the book's about. I don't know a path forward usually without educating myself in some way. Or, or having something from the outside that's different than just what I'm coming up with on my own, or just what I'm being fed through media. I mean, we we address Christian nationalism. We address those hot button terms in the book in a way that hopefully causes you to stop and pay attention to where your sources are. Doesn't mean all your sources are bad, but if all your sources are are like so extreme on one side, they don't have any balance. You're not hearing any counterpoints and and what the scriptures say about that way of approaching life, and also just what historically we see when we come to a place where in the 1920s, you know, hundreds of thousands of of or, or tens of thousands of of some of them representatives and senators and others in KKK regalia can march on Washington. And this is okay in that time because of what extremism does to us that have become accepted. And the number of people who are ordained ministers in those numbers is just staggering. And, and you go, hey, guys, you know, that seems for so many people like just, you know, almost an infinity amount of time ago, but it's not. And we can be caught in extremism now and tribalism and other, other things today in ways we don't recognize unless we stop. And we allow outside sources to also inform the way that we're looking at things. And so if, for, for white Christians, I would say, hey, I mean, again, that's why we wrote this book. A lot of it is for you. We say that in the introduction. It's not because, like you said, I loved how you said it. We say, hey, a lot of our black brothers and sisters are already at this table. And so we're not trying to say there's not something they need to hear here, but they're asking us to come to this table. So we're going to have to address a lot of, of the white Christian perspective in order to find a way for us to come to this table together. And I think if we could just get past the insult of that, like it's okay that I still need to change. It's okay that I still need to grow and to learn and find those sources. We want to help be those sources, though it's going to keep changing. There's going to be new terms and new that keeps evolving. That's all right. But if we wait for the perfect time to do the right thing, then we'll never do it. So at least be at the table, be at the table, make the mistakes. And when you do learn to say, hey, you know what? I should have said that differently. I, I, I should grow here. We have really tried with, with the people who are upset about it. We love them too. If we can't love them too, then everything we're saying is, I mean, that's like the very basis of, of, of Christianity. So we can say, hey, we can correct and exhort with all this long suffering. I'm using these scriptural terms, but I don't, I don't need to hate or, or hey, no, you're, you're now my enemy and you're against me. Or even if you want to make yourself my enemy, I get to still choose. And that's what Reggie teaches me so much. I still get to choose the way that I'm going to respond to this. And so for a lot of people who reached out like, hey, this offended me when I watched you guys on GMA and, and I heard this because, you know, it's eight minute interview. You didn't get the fullness of all the systemic issues, issues. And so how we tried to respond is, hey, listen, thank you so much for reaching out. You actually engaged. And actually the things you're worried about are what we're writing about in this book. And let us send you a copy. And then anything you see historically, anything you see scripturally, theologically that we missed, let's talk about that. Like we're open once we've once we've all come to the table and process this information, but let's engage and let's actually model the conversation that we're trying to write about. And so I don't get that right all the time. I mean, I have to. I mean, I'm, I get angry and all those things. I'm not trying to act like we just walk on water on this because it's not. It, like I said, it's a it's a minefield. But man, when you're walking together with other people uh, that you trust, and you're going to say, look, it's going to be hard to accuse us, hopefully, of being hypocritical on this because we're the ones pointing out where we're missing it constantly. We don't need you to point it out. Of course, we're hypocritical. Of course, we're missing it. How can we grow here? And then for me as a white guy, especially, I get to amplify my black brother's voice. I get to, to hear him tell his story and hopefully just shut up sometimes. And, just, and I'm, I'm here for your story to be heard and, and your, your perspective to be heard in a different way. And that's a real blessing because I have a hard time shutting up as I'm, I'm sure you can tell. <laughs> Listen, pastors are very verbose, but there's nothing more powerful than 
sharing whatever platform and influence we've been given to whatever scale it is with voices and leaders that our community is largely not listening to. That's, that's our work. It's good work. So bravo to you for partnering with Reggie in such a powerful and a meaningful way. Cause as a pastor, you could easily and justifiably pick any number of other things, a hundred other things. You could pick a hundred other things to sort of put your hand to, and it would be on brand. Like there's a lot in the gospel to deal with. And so the fact that you chose this one to, to really steer into is incredible. I'm proud of you. And I think the fruit of it, you'll probably just never even know, like you'll probably never see the end of it until eternity. And it's good work. It's one of those things that you'll be on your deathbed and be proud of. It's caused me to be more engaged in a lot of other issues as well, because it's, it's I had that question for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the same muscle. Uh, humility is is the same muscle. And that's a big, another big sort of sticking point for a lot of people. Oh, what about this issue? What about this issue? We we write about what about isms a lot in the book. And the whole central premise is if you're not engaged in everything that should be engaged and then we can now gaslight or we can be upset at you for engaging in one and not all of them. That's right. And sort of the even hypocrisy of that is often the people who are spending their time yelling about all of us not being engaged in everything we should be are also not engaged in right. everything because right. who can, right? You right. can't engage in all, but we're not acting like this is the only issue. And obviously it's not just about black and white. I mean, you know, we write a little in the front. I mean, Hey, obviously there's a native American atrocious history. So we can't address all that in this one book, but we acknowledge that it's important and it's valid. And, and hopefully these principles will help us apply to a lot of other issues, even outside of race and ethnicity. So, I mean, I think humility leads us to help in a lot of ways and to be present in the right conversations, regardless of what that's right. I call that pulling the thread. And that's been my experience is once you start pulling that thread, that whole thing's going to unravel. Like for in, in our story, in my personal story, the marginalized community where I t- did the first tug of the thread was economic disparity. So it was for the poor. It was people who were financially disadvantaged in, in, in a number of contexts. But once you develop eyes to see marginalization and oppression, once you, once you begin to learn how the system is designed, to keep certain people in power at the expense of others. You see it everywhere. I mean, uh, the next thing is it just all rolls downhill. Like it's you're just, it's a matter of time before you care about racism and white supremacy, before you care about homophobia and the abuse of the gay community, before you care about gender inequality. You can't help it. It's all the same thing. And it's all the same muscle. And so you know, it's a, it's a road. Like I tell people all the time, like, don't tug that thread if you're not ready, man, because it's coming, it'll unravel. Well, and you don't, you know, a lot of people think of that as, as us not loving the system or our nation. And, and when you get to that whole, the system does have a hard thing. It really sort of begins to deconstruct what it is you believe America should be. And when you begin to kind of like, oh, I love America. Like, how can you say America doesn't have a heart? And then turn around and say you love America. And, and again, I'm a former history government teacher, public school. So I love my country. And I think that's where the gospel sort of overlays here for me is like, actually, if I love my country then holding her to stated ideals, whether or not they were stated correctly by the founders, whether or not they were you know, implemented rightly, they obviously were not. But if we're going to elevate something here worth elevating, then, and I even make this point, if you look at George Washington's you know, farewell address, he talks about the way that democracy is our right to establish and alter our systems, our constitutions of government. Like to, to him, it wasn't like, this is going to be what it always is. I mean, they were surprised. This was an experiment. <laughs> you know, they were surprised that this was going as, a, as, as it was. And, and they were trying to build, I believe, what is to this day the best democratic experiment to date. But it's still not God's kingdom. And we're not going to overlay God's kingdom in a way that, that this democracy is going to reveal it. God's kingdom's already come. And so in this, you go, okay, I, I can love this country. And like I love how you said, I can engage civically. And that's important. I can engage in these other areas. It's not just sit back and throw you know, spiritual terms at it. Like There's absolutely a practical side to live in this, but how those spiritual things are informing my practical engagement and what my understanding of that is. I'm not tearing down the nation. I'm actually holding the nation to what her stated ideals are because the closer we get to those stated ideals, that's why they're called ideals, then the better it's going to be. Not the worse. But when I see 
this drift from the things that we claim are the foundations of, of what we are, are going to do in, in government and in, in people interaction. If I see us drifting from that and I can't call it to that because I'm afraid of basically offending the heart of an inanimate object, the nation or group of people, like I don't have to hate soldiers and police officers. Like that's not what our book's about. I don't I have many, many friends and I don't believe in, in, you know, when you don't think in systemic ways, then and we make this case, we give all the statistics of the traffic stops and how they, the numbers go down at night because they you know, can't see the color of the skin, all those things. I mean, it's staggering. Hundreds of things yeah, that we include. It, it, it's indisputable, frankly. Yeah. It's just, it's fa- this is facts. It is. And, and yeah. I would encourage everyone to read them and, and then have to grapple with what that is. But we say, if you don't believe in systemic issues and it's all just an individual's heart, the way that we infer what the new conclusion is, is devastating. That means we have an entire just nation full of, of a bunch of racist cops and a bunch of racist other people. And I don't believe that. I don't, I don't necessarily believe that this is a lot of people just walking around saying, I want to hurt people of other colors today. And so t- systemic issues actually cause you to go, oh, maybe there's a way in the, well, number one, in the inception, the history of, of what these you know, police forces were, mm-hmm, how sure. they enforced black codes and Jim Crow and other things. And what is the downstream legacy of that history? that we're dealing with today. It doesn't mean it's some overt thing that a bunch of people are setting out to do this harm, yet harm is being done. And some do set out to do harm. I'm not saying they're not all, but, but I think it's a much worse conclusion to not deal with the bigger picture of systemic issues. Because what you're saying is, is man, we are just riddled with, just with a terrible. lot of indiv- yeah, just yeah. racists everywhere. And I don't yeah. believe that's the case. I think a lot That's of people, good. they're not engaging because they want to do the right thing, but they're in a system that where maybe they're engaging in patterns that they didn't start but are still happening around them. And so it's okay to address the system in a way that will help the individual. I'm sure it was a part of your stack of books that you reached for at the beginning of your journey, but the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander just lays this bear. I mean, uh, just as bare as bear can be. It's dense readers. If you're, if you're listening, I mean, it, that took me about three weeks to get through. I mean, carefully picking through chapter by chapter, but she essentially traces the system of white supremacy from its origin in the United States to this very living day. And it is, it's, it's all facts and research and it's, it's, you can't really dispute it, but it is a hard read on the heart, but a good one. Okay. Listen, we're drifting into history nerdery, which is one of my favorite subjects. I mean, I go hard on history. So you've got a day. And I thank you so much for your time. Can you just, before I let you go, tell my listeners where they can find you, where they can find Reggie, your book, any other body of work that you guys have put out into the world together? Sure. So not so black and white book.com can go there and find Amazon links or any other retailers, but make sure you put the book in not so black and white book.com. And uh, we'd love for you to go engage in this conversation. You can actually begin reading sample chapters there. There's some videos there, some other things on that website. You can follow me and Reggie on Instagram, Facebook, wherever else you know, you're know you looking. And so Reggie's a fun follow. I mean, he's, all, he's 300 days a year for like the last 35 years on the road. And, oh uh, my yeah. gosh. It's unbelievable. And I've, I write for a lot of different people, you know, and Reggie's one of my dear friends. I've never seen anyone who goes like he goes to take hope to people. And it's generally, you know, he does huge conferences and, and he does you know, the stadiums, all those things. But his, as you could tell, his heart is to be with you know, 45 middle schoolers today because someone there needs hope. I mean, you, you, it's, it's amazing. So you'd love to follow Reggie. Yeah, he's a great guy. Great guy. Mm. Thank you. Thanks to both of you for being on today and for your work. I'm always so thrilled to find another incredible leader and resource to put in front of my community as we just continue to like claw our way forward through this. I just have this audacious hope. I was born this way. It's so frustrating for everybody around me, but I just believe in a better possibility and I believe that we'll see it. And so thanks for being a part of the solution. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. It was, it was a pleasure. Okay, so there you have it. I mean, we literally lost Reggie to go serve middle school students. I mean, this guy, man, he's real deal. I love that conversation. I want to forever center it in my space in all my spaces. And thank you for listening today. Thank you for leaning into a conversation that if you're white, 
can pretty quickly trigger feelings of defensiveness. And yet I think the word that I heard today that just is the solution, the absolute solution to whatever keeps us sidelined from this work is humility. That's it. If, if, if that can be the, the battleground we choose, if we can pray for a, a humble heart, if we can ask God to instill in us the necessary humility, just to know that we are always going to need to examine our own patterns, our own thoughts, our own behaviors, because we're human, like all, 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 A-L-L, you, me, all then that creates a, a, a scaffolding in which we can now meaningfully engage in this. And so anyway, if you go to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, I'll have not only this episode and all the show notes, but all the links to both Reggie and John's social accounts. And then obviously where you can find their book, which what a great tool. Put it in the middle of your small group, read it to your family, read it with your friends, give it to your pastor. Like, what a great place to start you guys. And so thanks for, thanks for being with us in this series. Thank you for being a community that of course loves to laugh and be entertained and have, you know, fun and funny shows in your ears, but also you're willing to come with us as we work hard and do some heavy lifting around conversations that matter. They matter because they matter to people and people matter. So Thanks for sharing this one and for rating and reviewing the show. Subscribe if you haven't already, and you'll never miss another episode. Also, don't forget to go back and listen to the For the Love of Black Lives. If you missed that series last year, easily one of the most powerful series we've ever produced. So that is there waiting for you. All right, you guys, we sure love you on behalf of Laura and the production team and Amanda and I. See you next week.